Ministry speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. So good to see you all here and so good to be with you all. And let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us and for the privilege that it is to be able to serve you. Father, we pray that as we spend our evening this evening taking up this most important subject of the afterlife, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the presence of your holy angels. We pray that you'll be close to us and that you'll draw us close to you. And so we pray for your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If we travel back to ancient Egypt, we find that one of the central symbols or codes used by the ancient Egyptians was a symbol of a bird. The bird was used to symbolize many different things and there were many different birds that were used as symbols. They used the symbol of the eagle, the falcon, the vulture, the owl, the peacock, the raven, and of course the mythical phoenix. Now, the bird was associated with a number of different gods. Primarily, the bird was associated with the sun god, but wherever the bird was found, it was always a symbol of a spirit being. Now, amongst the birds that symbolized the sun, you had the eagle, the falcon, and the vulture. The reason that these three were used to symbolize the sun was because they were the ones who soared the highest in the sky. They were the closest to the sun. And so therefore they were seen to have a very special relationship with the sun. And so you'll often see them depicted in association with the circle or the symbol of the sun. Of course, the owl was a symbol of the the spirit of the dead or of a guardian of the dead. The peacock was the eye of Ra, the sun god, because the peacock has a tail that is full of eyes. And the raven, wherever you saw a crow, he was a dead spirit. And so you'll find if you travel throughout the ancient world that the mystery religions consistently used symbols of birds to symbolize spirit beings. You'll notice here that these birds often have the circle of the sun at the centre of them. And so you'll find them popping up all over the place in many different ways and places. The interesting thing about the symbol of the uh, bird is that you'll often find it associated with the symbol of the serpent as well. And the question comes up, why would a serpent, a snake, be depicted with wings? Well, the answer, of course, is because it is a depiction of Lucifer who is both an angel and a serpent. And so you find them scattered throughout the ancient world. You find them all the way across in the Americas, in Asia. You find them popping up there. Wherever you go, you find exactly the same symbol being used. And of course, it's interesting to see how this symbol has crept down into modern times and you see it coming up in places that you would consider to be the most unusual. Now, in the Bible, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18 we find that birds are used as a code, as a symbol in the Bible as well. Now, of course, in the Bible, we have the symbol of the dove. And what does the dove a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. 
So if the dove is a symbol of a Holy Spirit, then we ask ourselves the question, well, what do these other birds symbolize? In Revelation chapter 18. In fact, let's before we go there, let's go to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, where the Bible says this, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So here we find the Bible says three unclean or evil spirits. They come from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They go out to the nations of the world, and we've read this passage a number of times as we've gone through this series, to gather the kings of the world together at the end of time in rebellion against God. So here we know immediately that spiritualism will play a major role in gathering the world together just before the return of Christ. In chapter 18, the Bible describes this global gathering together under the term of Babylon. And in verse 1 it says, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven with great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation or the living place of devils, that's unclean spirits, and the whole, whole of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Notice here that birds, once again, are used as a code, as a symbol for unclean spirits. And so you have the dove is a symbol in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. But birds of prey, scavengers, vultures, eagles, crows, etc., are symbols of evil spirits. And of course, it's most unusual where you see them popping up. In all the places where you would least expect them to find them, you find these birds of prey all over the place and forming really quite a major uh, symbol in many places right here. This one's an interesting one because you have it combined with the symbol of the serpent beneath and, of course, the serpent with wings. So we know which serpent that one is right there. And you find them popping up just all over the place. In fact, you find so many of these. I found this one rather interesting because here you have a, a certain saint who is writing some sacred writings And you have this bird of prey, a symbol of an evil spirit or a demon who is whispering in her ear. That's to make you wonder what's going on, doesn't it? You've got the same kind of symbol taking place right there and right there. And of course we find that over and over again these are symbols of evil spirits. Now the question that arises is this. If the Bible says that evil spirits or spiritualism will play a major role in the gathering together of the world at the end of time in rebellion against God, then what is spiritualism? What is the foundational teaching of evil spirits? So if we turn our Bibles back to Genesis, let's go and turn our Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3. If we turn all the way back there, we find Satan in his very first interaction with the human race And here, Satan has come to this earth. His purpose is to deceive Adam and Eve and to build for him an empire here on this planet. And so the question that comes up is, well, what is Satan going to establish as the foundational principle on which he will build his kingdom? So let's look at what the Bible says. If we begin in Genesis chapter 3, And verse 1, the Bible says, Now the serpent 
was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Yes, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not do what? So what is the very first lie that Satan tells right here? You shall not surely die. Satan is building a foundation on which he plans to establish his kingdom. And of course, this is the foundational principle of spiritualism today, which is playing a major role in our world. The fundamental principle of spiritism is that the human beings survive bodily death and that occasions under conditions not yet fully understood, we can communicate with those who have gone before. And of course, the Bible specifically speaks against any attempt to communicate with the dead because in doing so, we are participating in spiritualism. So we have to then ask ourselves the question, if this is Satan's first lie, and if this is the foundation on which he established his kingdom here on this earth, what does the Bible actually say about what happens when you die? You see, the disadvantage we have is it's not so easy to go and interview somebody after they're dead and find out, well, what is it like to be dead, is it? I don't think any of us have ever done that, have we? No, we haven't done that. So in this case, we turn to Scripture and we find out, well, what does the Bible say on this particular subject? Does that sound fair enough? Because here we can learn, we can find out from God himself What does God say about what happens when we die? You see, friends, when you know what the Bible says, you know what the truth is. Don was talking about some people believe this, some people believe that, some people believe the other. You know what? I don't care what Don believes. I don't even care what I believe. I care what the Bible says, don't you? Because here is the answer Right here, this is the issue and this is what we need to focus on. So the first question that we're going to look at is, are human beings naturally mortal or immortal? So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Job. Job chapter 4, and so you'll find that just before Psalms. Psalms is pretty much middle of the Bible, spelt with a P, it's the big one. And just before that, go to Job, you'll find that on page 208. 208, the Bible simply says right here, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? So does the Bible say that man is naturally mortal or immortal? Right here the Bible says, shall mortal man. Now the word mortal simply means subject to death. So we know that human beings are subject to death. And I guess we're really stating the obvious right here because unfortunately this is something that we are all very familiar with. Let's look at the contrast to this if we turn over to the book of 1 Timothy. All the way over in the New Testament. All of the T books are all together. And you'll find this one on page 480. Page 480, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we will start reading in verse 16, 15, sorry. The Bible says, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus, who only has immortality, living in the light which no man can approach unto. This is the God the Father, sorry. Whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. Who does the Bible say only has natural immortality? God, God alone, has natural immortality. So then we have to ask the next question that naturally follows on from that, and that is, well, what about the soul? Is the soul naturally mortal or immortal? And to find the answer to that, we will turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to do a bit of Bible study tonight. So make sure your fingers are limbered up and ready to go. Isaiah is the middle of the Bible. Then you go Jeremiah, and then you go to Ezekiel chapter 18, page 343. Ezekiel chapter 18, page 343. And here we're going to read verse 4, Ezekiel 18 and verse 4. The Bible says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it will do what? Die. That's fairly simple, isn't it? Go down to verse 18, says the same thing down there. Uh, verse 18, the soul that sins, it shall die. And of course, there are many places in the Bible where the Bible says that the soul is mortal, subject to death. Revelation chapter 16, the Bible says in the seven last plagues, every soul that was in the sea died. So we have to ask ourselves the question, well, then how can that be possible? How can it be possible that the soul can die? Because typically we hear the opposite of that. Well, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we do... We're going to look at this particular statement right here. You see the word soul and the word spirit are found over 1,700 times in the Bible. Now that's quite a lot of times, isn't it? And out of all of those 1,700 times, you will never find a reference where the Bible says that the soul or the spirit is immortal. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, well, What does happen when a person dies? Let's turn our Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. So that's just after Psalm. Psalm spelt with a P. Just go after that. You'll find the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. This is page 274. Ecclesiastes 12, page 274, where the Bible says in verse 7, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Once again, this is language that we are all familiar with, isn't that so? When we die, what is it that we all turn into? Dust. We are made up of two things, water and dirt. So we're all dirt bags, right? We're made up of water and dirt. When the water evaporates away, we turn back to dust, just as the Bible says. But then it goes on and says, where does the Spirit go? Back to God who gave it. So we have to ask ourselves the next question, what is the Spirit that goes back to God who gave it? Does that sound fair enough? 
So here's what we're going to look at next. We're going to look at a biblical definition for the spirit that returns to God who gave it. We're going to look for a biblical definition for the soul. And when we find out what the Bible says that the soul is, then we can find out why the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Does that sound reasonable? Good. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Job. Job chapter 27. And we will look in verse 3. So that's Job, spelt like Job, pronounced like Job. And I didn't write the page number down for this one. What page is that one on? 215, thank you. Job chapter 27 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says right, right here. It says, All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is where? In my nostrils. Now that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Does that mean that we all have a ghost in our nose? Is there a ghost in your nose? No, there's no ghost in your nose. You see, the word spirit and the word breath are both the same word in both the the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, it comes from the word pneuma. And the word pneuma is where we have the concept of things that are pneumatic. Now, something that is pneumatic runs on what? air and if you have pneumonia you have a disease of your breathing isn't that so the spirit that this now there are um, well obviously we're not talking about the holy spirit here we're not talking about ministering spirits because of those are angels we're talking about the human spirit is the breath of life that god gives to us when we die god takes the breath of life away when we are resurrected he gives the breath of life back again So the breath of life is not a ghost. It doesn't have a consciousness of its own. The Bible doesn't teach that. It is simply the breath of life. And that's what the Bible says. We'll go back to God who gave it when we first received life. Well, what about the soul? What is the soul? Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the answer because what we're going to look at here is the creation of man. Now, if you want to find out what happens when a person dies, that's pretty much the opposite of creation. Isn't that so? So if we look at how God created human beings, then we can find some clues to what happens when we die. All right, Genesis chapter 2. Want you to notice what God does right here in verse 7. Genesis 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man... Of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a what? Living soul. So let's think about this for a moment. God begins by forming a body. And what does he make that body out of? Dirt. The dust of the ground. We're all we're all dirt. Okay, so he forms a body out of the dirt. And the thing that I really like about this is that it tells us something about Jesus' relationship and interest in us as human beings. How did God create all the animals? He spoke them into existence, didn't he? But when it came to creating human beings, God got very personal, didn't he? And this was something very special and he came down and he got his hands dirty and he created a body out of the dirt. And then what did he add to that body? He breathed into that body, the Bible says, the breath of life. And after he breathed into that body, the breath of life, what did man become? 
a living soul. So we have a very simple equation right here. If we want to understand what takes place, we have the body or the dust that is created. God then adds to it the breath of life that the Bible calls the spirit and man becomes a living soul. Now what happens then if we reverse that equation? If we take away the breath of life, what happens? The breath of life goes back to God who gave it. The body returns to the dust and the soul dies just as the Bible says. It's really quite simple, isn't it? You see, let me give you an example right here. It's almost like a mathematical equation. One plus two equals three. A body plus breath equals a living soul. That's what it says right there in verse seven. Think about it like this. A light bulb, and we have lots of light bulbs here this evening. A light bulb to produce light requires two things. You've got to have a light bulb, isn't that so? That's like a body. Then you add to that electricity and the light bulb comes to life, doesn't it? Remove the electricity, what happens? The light dies. That simple. Okay. So here we have a biblical definition for what a soul is. In fact, sometimes when I'm telling people about this meeting the night before, I said, I, I, I've said, come along tomorrow and I will show you a living soul. You be careful doing that because you have all these people that turn up because they, they can't wait to see a ghost. <laughs> a, a soul is not a ghost. A soul is a person. In fact, the Bible says in Peter that eight souls were saved on the ark. Does that mean that eight ghosts were saved on the ark? No, if eight ghosts were saved on the ark, then we would all be ghosts right now. Isn't that how it works? Eight people were saved on the ark. That's why the Bible says the soul that sins it shall die because the soul refers to a person. And to have a living soul, you've got to have breath and you've got to have a body. Now, if the soul dies then how does that relate to the concept of the resurrection? Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 104. Psalms chapter 104. And let me, that's page 246. We'll work our way through this particular passage here because it more or less reverses the equation. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says that God formed a body, he added the breath of life, and he ended up with a living soul. Psalms chapter 104, the Bible says in verse 29, you hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, the spirit. They die and return to what? Dust, okay? We'll reverse that equation. What happens at the time of the resurrection? In verse 30, it says, you send forth your spirit, the breath of life, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. So we have it going one way, we have it going the other way. You have two things brought together to create a living soul. Now this raises some questions because, and, and I'll, be, I'll be up front at this particular point, I've been to many funerals and I'm sure that we all have done the same thing um, and we have situations where people say, well, you know, this person, their soul has, you know, gone to heaven. I haven't been to a funeral yet where they've said that their soul has gone to hell, but 
We have that on occasions. And yet the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Anybody here that has sinned? Yeah, I see a few people nodding their heads. I'll put my hand up. (laughs) The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that so? So I'm going to ask some, some questions here at this particular point before we go any further. Let's consider for a moment King David. Was King David a righteous man or an evil man? He was a righteous man. Now, he did some terrible sins, isn't that so? But he received the forgiveness and the grace of God. The Bible tells us very plainly that David is somebody that we will meet in heaven one day, isn't that so? So the question that comes up is this. Is David there already or not? Is that a fair enough question? You see, if his soul died, if his soul is dead, if David is dead, then... Where is David? Well, let's find out what the Bible says. Let's turn over to the book of Acts. Does it sound like a reasonable question? Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, page 440. Page 440. And typically, if we went to King David's funeral, we would find most people today would say, well, you know, David, his soul has gone to heaven, wouldn't we? But what does it say? Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, 34. Let's find out what the Bible says, where David is not. It says, for David is not ascended into where? He's not there. The Bible makes that plain. And yet the Bible also makes it plain that David was a saved man. So if David is not in heaven, we need to ask, well, where is he? Let's go back a little, a little bit. And we go back to verse 29 where it says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his grave is with us to this day. All right, so let's review for a moment. Where is David not? He's not in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Where is David? In his grave, waiting for the resurrection. You see, what this directs our minds to is the concept of when, as human beings, we receive our reward. You see, you have two options as to when you can receive your reward. You can receive your reward at the time of death. If the soul is immortal, you receive your reward at the time of death. Isn't that so? Yet if your soul is not immortal, if it is mortal, then you receive that reward when? At the time of the resurrection. So we have to ask ourselves, when do we receive the reward of eternal life? Or in another case, damnation. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Let's see what the Bible says. The Bible is ever so clear on this subject. That's page 398. Matthew chapter 16, page 398, verse 27. The Bible says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. The key word in that verse right there is the word then. When does the Bible say that we receive our reward? When Jesus comes with his angels. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work 
shall be. So we know that the righteous receive their reward at the second coming of Jesus, not at the time of death. Now does it start to put it into a little bit of context, Satan's first lie. Satan established his kingdom on what principle? You shall not surely die. And the Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Those are two opposites, wouldn't you say? And I'm going to go with the Bible, won't you? Praise the Lord. Okay, so the Bible says very clearly that we receive our reward at the second coming of Jesus, at the resurrection of the just, when Jesus returns. Now, the next question that comes up from that is this. Well, what about the wicked? When do the wicked receive their reward? Do they receive their reward the moment that they die? Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 5. And you might want to mark this page because we're going to read it in this presentation. We're going to read it again this evening and we're going to read it again tomorrow evening. We're going to read it three times, three presentations in a row. John chapter 5, that's page 431. In verse 28, speaking about his return, Jesus says, that's page 431, John 5 verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are where? In the graves shall hear his voice. And what will they do? The Bible says they will come forth. Isn't that so? They'll come forth from their grave. They shall come forth. Those that have done good unto the resurrection of life and those that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So where does the Bible say that the righteous are right now? In their graves. Where does the Bible say that the wicked are right now? In their graves. In fact, I'll put this verse on the screen just so that you can read it because I think it is so clear. It says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Isn't that good news? And it goes on to speak about the wicked. And to reserve, mark that word well, the unjust unto, mark that word well, the day of judgment, to be, mark those two words well, punished. Does the Bible say right here that the wicked are being punished right now? No, the Bible says that they are reserved, they are set aside unto the day. That points it into future tense, doesn't it? Unto the day of judgment, to be punished. Once again, the Bible puts it in future tense tense and so we know that John Smith I hope John Smith's not here this evening <laughs> I was doing this presentation one time and somebody came to me after and said oh my name's John Smith I'm like oops reserved under the judgment for the day of punishment I haven't seen a tombstone like that yet it would be a bit serious to put that on a tombstone wouldn't it yeah okay so what we have here to friends is two options we have two options that are mutually exclusive the one cancels out the other. On one hand, you have the option of the immortality of the soul, which teaches that you never die. The moment that you physically die here on earth, you continue to live and you go straight to heaven. The other option that you have is the teaching of the resurrection. You can't have both. It doesn't make any sense to have both. You see, if you are already alive, 
why do you need a resurrection? If you're already alive and happy in heaven, what do you need a resurrection for? But if you have a resurrection, how can you have a resurrection unless you are dead? You see, you can't have both. You've got to choose one or the other and you have to ask yourself this question right here. Which one does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach the immortality of the soul or does the Bible teach the resurrection? What you find is the word soul and spirit are mentioned over 1,700 times in the Bible. You won't find a single reference where it refers to either the soul or the spirit as being immortal. Okay, so the Bible says over here that John Smith, he is reserved to be punished at the resurrection of damnation. Now here's another question. What is it like to be dead. Have you ever wondered what it's, what's it like to actually be dead? You know the Bible actually gives us the answer. In fact, we can find this in a whole bunch of different places. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we should be close by already, page 434. And here we find the story of Lazarus. Now Lazarus got sick. Lazarus was a very close friend of Jesus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, the three of them, had spent a lot of time learning the teachings of Jesus. And so Jesus had been teaching them, teaching them, teaching. Jesus lived and spent time in their home on occasions. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus is in another part of the country. They send a message. Can you come back and heal Lazarus because he's sick? And Jesus doesn't go anywhere. For several days, Jesus doesn't move. But then a little while later, um, we come down to John chapter 11 and verse 11. These things said he, that's Jesus. And after that, he said unto them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I'm going that I may wake him out of his sleep. He says, look, Lazarus has gone to sleep. But I'm going to go and wake him up. And the disciples said, no, 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 no. If he's sleeping, don't wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his what? So what does Jesus describe being dead like? Asleep. Have you ever had that kind of a situation where maybe you've been working really hard, you, know, you put in like a 17-hour day or something like that, or you're really jet-lagged and you're just dog-tired and your pillow is just calling out to you and you go to sleep and you put your head on that pillow and it's like, oh, that's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? And the next second, sun is streaming in the window, isn't it? You remember anything? You don't remember a thing, do you? It's almost instantaneous and it is the next day. And you think, wow, where did that night go? It's just, and it's passed. That's what it's like, the Bible says, to be dead. So do you need to fear death? If you love Jesus, you don't need to fear death. It's like going to sleep. And it's a peaceful sleep where you won't be disturbed And the next second you will see the return of Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and raising you from the dead. Won't that be good? Praise God. Now the story of Lazarus doesn't finish right here because as Jesus travels back, he comes and then of course Martha comes out to meet him. And uh, verse 20, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. And Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can imagine she was heartbroken. And probably many of us have been through this experience. She goes on in verse 22, But I know that even now, whatever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. In verse 23, Jesus said unto her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again when? 
So here is somebody who has been learning at the feet of Jesus. So a couple of significant things here that we need to take note of. Jesus is comforting Martha. And he doesn't say, Martha, your brother is in heaven. Martha, your brother is in a better place. That's not what, that's not what Jesus says, does he? He comforts her with the promise of the resurrection. Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha knows the teachings of Jesus, and where is her comfort found? Does Martha say, I know he's in a better place. I know he's in heaven right now. No, Martha says, I know he will raise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's where Martha finds her comfort. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Those of you who know the story, Jesus goes to the grave, and of course, Jewish custom was to uh, bury in a cave. And so we find that Lazarus had been buried in a cave and four days had gone by and they come there and Jesus is crying and uh, Jesus says, roll away the stone from the mouth of the cave. And everybody's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't roll the stone away because it's going to be really awful because he's going to smell. It would be really awful. There's some things you don't want to see, right? Some experiences you don't want to have. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And so they rolled the stone away. And if we come down a few more verses, we find the most amazing story right here of the power of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 43, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Three significant things that Jesus did right here because the moment that he said Lazarus came forth and he was all tied up as the custom was in grave clothes. Number one, the first thing that is significant about what Jesus did was that Jesus said, Lazarus. Because do you know what would have happened if Jesus had not said Lazarus and Jesus had just said, come forth? The creative power of God would have raised every single person back to life who had ever died because you can't hold back that kind of creative power. The second thing that is significant right here is that Jesus did not say, Lazarus, come down. Imagine how horrific that would have been for Lazarus being dragged out of heaven back to this earth again. Do you think he would have been very happy about that? I don't think so. That would be an awful experience. The third thing that is significant that Jesus said right here is that Jesus did not say, Lazarus, come up, because Lazarus was not down anywhere where he could come up. He was right there in the grave in front of Jesus, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And so we find the Bible says, and there are many passages, we could go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. We spent quite a bit of time in Daniel. Let's spend some more time there right now. Daniel chapter 12, the Bible speaks about the return of Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What does the Bible say right here when Jesus comes back in verse 2? And many of those that do what? Sleep. Whereabouts do they sleep? In the dust of the earth. They shall awake, 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Bible says that we turn to dust when we die and we sleep in the grave until Jesus brings us back to life. And sometimes people ask me this question. I think it's a valid one. You know, what happens if a person is cremated? Let me ask you a question. Do we serve an all-powerful God? Yes. When you die, you have two ways of turning to dust. The slow way or the fast way. (laughs) Cremation is the fast way. Either way, you end up in the same condition. We don't need to worry about these things, friends. And if you've got friends or relatives that have passed away and been cremated, you don't need to stress about that because God is plenty powerful enough to deal with whatever situation it is that we might find ourselves in. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Psalms. What we're going to do here is we're simply going to look at a list of a number of of salient verses in the Bible. Psalms, spelt with a P, will go right to the end of the book. Psalms, chapter 146, page 257. And we'll read verse 3. It simply says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, his spirit, the breath of life, He returns to this earth in that very day. What happens? His thoughts perish. The Bible says that his thoughts perish. Okay, well, let's go now over to the book of Ecclesiastes. The Bible says that his thoughts perish. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we'll read verse 5. Page 273. That's just a couple of pages over. Page 273, and here in verse 5, the Bible says in the plainest possible language, when I read this here, it's almost as if Solomon, when he was writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he could see the hold that the devil's foundational lie was taking on the world. And he's like, okay, how can I combat this particular deception in the clearest possible language so that nobody can ever get it wrong? And so he wrote this passage right here. He says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now what? Perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Can you write it down more plainly this? There are no emotions, the Bible said. There are no works. Go down to verse 10, whatsoever. Your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. You know, when I read these plain statements right here, and I find that the thoughts perish, that there are no emotions, there are no works, there is no wisdom, there is no praise, there is no love. These are all things that I intend to have when I get to heaven, don't you? I intend to love God. I intend to praise God. I intend to build things. The Bible says that we will build things. I intend to do things. I intend to be very involved in what is taking place in heaven. Above all, I intend to worship Jesus face to face. Let's go back to Psalms again. Psalms chapter 115 this time. Psalms 115, page 250. And verse 17, where it says in the plainest language, the dead don't do what? They don't praise the Lord. Neither any that go down to silence. Go back to Psalms chapter 6. Psalms chapter 6, right at the beginning of the book. Psalms 
page 222. Psalms chapter 6, and here we will read verse 5 where it says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? And so the Bible makes it plain in the plainest, simplest language. And of course, there are many people who then ask me the question, and they say, well, you know, and, and this is a very valid question because the Bible says that there's no emotions, there's no works, there's no wisdom. In fact, they don't have anything to do with ever, you know, anything that's done under the sun. That means here on this earth. And whenever I do this presentation, about half the people that I do this presentation with have had various experiences with the supernatural. In fact, my father-in-law had an experience with the supernatural one time. He's a carpenter and he was working on a house renovation and the people that lived in the house said, um, you need to be aware there's a ghost that lives in this house and you'll see the leg of a young girl as she walks through the door, just, just the, the, the one leg as she goes through the door. And he was like, yeah, whatever, you know. No, no. And, uh, of course, he's working late there one night and he turns around and he sees this ghost right there. And so the question is, what is actually happening in these kinds of situations? Isn't that a very valid question? Yeah. Because many, it's a very, very common thing to take place here on this earth. Well, let's find out. And let's turn our Bibles to the book of Job once again and see what Job has to say in Job chapter 7. What is actually taking place when these events occur? And you'll find this on page 209. Job chapter 7, page 209 And we'll begin reading in verse 10 where the Bible says, As the cloud is consumed and vanishes away, so he that goes down to the grave shall come up no more. He shall return no more to his what? House. Neither shall his place know him anymore. So what does the Bible say that a person will not do after they die? They're not coming back to the house. So then we ask ourselves the question, what is happening with ghosts? What is happening with aliens and UFOs and these kind of experiences? This is a very valid question because some people have very real experiences. I'm not, I'm not denying the experiences that people have. Let's consider for a moment. What was Satan's first lie? You shall not surely die. So how is Satan actually going to sell that lie? Well, let's list some things we know about angels. Angels can take various forms, can't they? We have many instances in the Bible where angels took the form of human beings. We have several instances where Satan and his angels took the form of serpents, of snakes, one in Genesis, another with Moses. So we find that that an angel is a being that can take various forms. Forms. Now, if Satan wanted to deceive the whole world, how better than to actually show you something? Because once we've seen something, we're like, well, you know, I know the Bible says that, I know it says it very plainly, but I've seen it. And so, friends, the Bible says that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And here we're going to read about the crucifixion of Jesus. And when we read this particular passage right here, you're going to go, ha-ha, Lyle, you were wrong. All right, so here we have Luke chapter 23, and this is the day that Jesus died. This is the most wonderful story. You know, when I think about Jesus, he's hanging on the cross, 
And he's hanging on a cross between two what? Thieves. These men are being executed for their sins. And so he's hanging there between these two thieves. And one of these thieves recognizes what is taking place. Now this blows my mind every time I read it because I'm thinking the disciples, they are distraught. They have no idea what is happening, do they? There are only two people on the day that Jesus died that actually saw, recognized and understood what was happening. One was the Roman centurion and the other was the thief. Somehow he recognized that Jesus was actually gaining the victory right here. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns around and says something to him, very significant, right here in Luke chapter 23. And we will read it in verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Truly I say unto you, today shall you be with me where? In paradise. So doesn't the Bible plainly say that the thief went to be in paradise with Jesus on that day. How can that be if the Bible says that we sleep in the grave until the resurrection? Do we have the Bible contradicting itself right here? Well, the friends, the answer, friends, is very simple, and the answer is absolutely not. In the New Testament, the New Testament is translated from the Greek language. New Testament Greek is written in all capital letters with no spaces between the words and no punctuation marks. That would be interesting to read, wouldn't it? And from that, of course, our New Testament has been translated. So we've put spaces between the words, we've taken out the caps, and we've added in the punctuation. Does punctuation make a difference? Yeah? Huh? Okay. Read a story one time. Back in the days of telegrams, a lady from New York travelled to the continent to France. It was a fashionable thing to do in those days. And while she was there, she saw the most gorgeous dress. She tried it on. It fitted her perfectly. She looked amazing in this dress. And it had an astronomical price tag attached to it. But she just fell in love with it. And so she sends a telegram to her husband about this beautiful dress and how much it costs and can she buy it? Husband gets the telegram, sees the price of it, has about 10 conniption fits and sends the telegram back, no, price too high. Well, the person who was sending the telegram forgot to put in the comma. And so she gets the telegram, no price too high. Wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall when she got home? (laughs) Punctuation can make a big difference, doesn't it? Okay, so we can do something right here. Let's put it up on the screen. This is the Bible says it. Truly I say unto you, today shall you be with me in paradise. When we put the punctuation right there, as we find it in the King James Version, then Jesus is saying that both himself and the thief will be in paradise that day. However, if we move the comma as some other translations do, to after the today, it says, Truly I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, I'm giving you the assurance right now, before you die, you will be with me in paradise. So then we have to ask ourselves the next question, which one of these two, according to the Bible, is correct? Does that sound fair enough? 
Yeah? Good. Let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of John and let's find out. John chapter 20 has our answer. In fact, we'll start in John chapter 19. Page 439. Jesus dies on the cross, comes to the end of the day. The Jews had a thing about not executing people on the Sabbath day. And so as the Sabbath begins, they come to the two thieves in verse 32. The Bible says, Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and of the other that was crucified him with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they did not break his legs. So the first thing that we find out about the thieves is that they did not necessarily die that day. Two things that they uh, would do. One was that they would break their legs. That would mean that they would die faster. The other thing that they would do would break their legs, pull them off the cross, leave them at the bottom. They can't run away and nail them back up again on Sunday. Nice. Not. But anyway, this is what took place. Then we come over to chapter 20 and it becomes even more conclusive when we go over to chapter 20. So here's the first point. The thief didn't die that day. Second point. John chapter 20, Jesus, this is now Sunday morning. This is three days later. And the first person that Jesus meets is a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus meets her three days later, he says something in the very plainest language. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So three days later, where does Jesus say that he has not been? He has not been to heaven. So Jesus tells us very clearly he has not been to heaven. So if Jesus didn't go to heaven that day, then we know that the comma is more appropriate here as a number of modern translations actually translate it for that very reason. We know that he was not there. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We've read this passage a number of times and I think it's a very important passage for all of us to consider. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. I'm going to share a little bit of a story in relationship to this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will do what? Not a whole lot of point in doing that if you're already in heaven, right? Verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then Paul says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So here God actually specifically gives us words of comfort to use at the time of death. And those words of comfort are the promise of the resurrection. If you turn over a couple of pages to 2 Timothy, you find the last words that Paul wrote. Paul wrote these words, 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's on page 481. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is about to be executed. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Well, which day is that? When he will receive his crown of righteousness. It says, and not to me only, but unto all those also that love his appearing. The Bible says, friends, that Jesus is coming back soon. The Bible tells us that he has a crown of righteousness for every single one of us right here. That's his purpose for coming back to reward those who have given their lives to him. The Bible says that as Jesus comes back with his crown of righteousness, that Jesus is going to reward us all on that day, everybody that loves his appearing the day that he returns. In fact, Paul describes it in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes it over here in verse 51. That's page 466. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Well, how will we be changed? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and what will take place? The dead shall be raised, incorruptible. That means immortal. There is no immortality until the return of Jesus. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? grave, where is your victory? Don't you love this passage right here? The Bible speaks about the return of Jesus in power and great glory to resurrect the righteous back to life, to be with him. And every single one of us here, I'm sure that we have all suffered loss at some stage. And every single one of us here can look forward to this day right here, can't we? We can look forward to this day when families, when friends will be reunited together again because this is what God is all about, restoring people back to being with each other. The greatest thing that we can ever do for someone that has passed away is to ensure that we are there to be reunited with them on that great resurrection day. Isn't that where you want to be? Is that where you want to be, friends? That's where I want to be too. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you for the promise of your soon return. We pray that you'll bless us with your presence. We pray that you'll prepare us for that day. We look forward to that time when we will be reunited with those who have passed away. And so we pray for your blessing. We ask you. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.